Tenakoto no mai hai Hello everyone and welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Haunted items, or so-called haunted items, are available for sale seemingly everywhere you look on the internet today. A quick Google search resulted in about 21,400,000 results on the day I googled it. This buying and selling of supposedly haunted items has become a popular trend. eBay has a whole section devoted to it, Also on Facebook you can find any number of groups that dedicate themselves to the sale and purchasing of these items, but can items truly be haunted? Can spirit attach themselves to an inanimate object? Is it indeed possible for a spirit to stay with a physical item it loved during life or an item that possibly caused their death, like a car, which we'll discuss later in the show? As we saw last episode with my wonderful guest, Dwayne Cerny, from the Chicago Antiques Market, that sometimes pre-loved items do come with extras added to them. In this episode, I'm going to discuss a number of supposedly haunted or allegedly cursed items. Are they the same thing even? Some of you may have heard of these items. Some may be new to you, but the question as always is, are you willing to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands and see what awaits us there? Then let's begin. The subject of haunted items is nothing new. It's been around as long as our ancestors have. In fact, in many cultures, people make items, especially Two house spirits, masks being the most common item used in this way, especially if they are to be used for ritual or spiritual purposes. In many cultures, as the mask is being made, the maker asks a specific spirit or deity to inhabit it, and supposedly, when this mask is then used, it helps the wearer to tune into the specific spirit or deity. In some cases, the wearer can be temporarily taken over or possessed by said being. But any single item or multiple items can have spirits or energies attached to them. The simple reality is that we are energetic beings and we are constantly shedding energy. Think of it like house dust that goes everywhere. Every single thing that we touch, we leave a little of our energy on. So, just imagine some item that you treasure above all else. You hold it, stroke it, touch it, admire it. You infuse all your loving or negative energy into this item, whatever it may be. You infuse it with your emotions at that point in time, positive or negative. So it's already got a large portion of your energy attached to it. Is it such a stretch of the imagination to consider that any object, whatever form it takes, was so loved of its owner that they don't want to let it go and so stay near it? The same works for items that are less friendly and supposedly cursed. By the way, People who are very sensitive are capable of reading the energy on any object and getting information about the deceased or previous owner 
or history and situations associated with that object. In fact, some police departments in different countries have used sensitives who have this gift to help them solve crimes. A number of television shows have been created using sensitives to obtain information about an unknown victim. This is done by holding a photo of them in an envelope so they can't see what the person looks like or by holding a personal item or piece of clothing belonging to that person. This particular gift is called psychometry. Some people may not recognise that they have this ability, but perhaps just feel uncomfortable when touching an object or feel emotional or feel the object calls to them in some way, as with Dwayne's friend last episode. They react on a mostly subconscious, visceral way to the energies put off by the object. Now, cursed items are a wee bit different. How do negative energies or entities become attached to such objects? And this is almost always deliberately done. The person usually does this in a form of a ritual of some sort or another from shamanic rituals practiced in some cultures to other occult or ritualistic practices, almost always intentional. They then summon a spirit or lower level entity and bind them to the object for a specific purpose or set of purposes. Whilst this practice is still done by some today, it was more common in earlier centuries. However, it is very likely that there are still very old objects in circulation that will have entities still attached to them. Likely, these would be small wearable items, but not always. And I'll talk specifically about a couple of larger items later on in this episode. However, for now, I'm going to share a part of a conversation with Robert Bitto, a guest coming up in about three episodes. When I was interviewing him, I asked him if he had ever come across a haunted object in his business of buying native artifacts, mostly from Mexico. Here is the interesting story he told me. I had a woman who was selling to me when I had a retail store. And she was the granddaughter of a witch. And she had all of these healing properties and stuff like that. She was a very weird, a strange character, you know, someone who would live on the outside of town, like we were talking about. But she said, you need to be burning incense in this place. There's, there, I can feel the energies of, these, of some of these things, these dolls that you have, these, these sculptures. They were made with feeling and meaning and you need to be burning sage and you need to be doing all this stuff and i'm like yeah whatever blah 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 whatever and then a few weeks later i opened up the store with an employee so i have a witness there was one piece of merchandise it was a sculpture it was a storyteller sculpture it was a woman's a seated woman telling stories with an open book with cats she was a cat lady that had like six cats, one on her shoulder, two on her shoulders, you know, and just the cats were like listening to her read. Right. That sculpture had moved on the shelf about one foot and it had moved all of the other pieces, clay pieces on the shelf away. And there were some on the floor. Okay. Oh. Yeah. There was stuff on the floor and my employee was like, what are you doing? You're trying to trick me or whatever. I said, no, you just came, you came in when I did right here. I didn't do this. And it was as if something happened in the middle of the night to move the sculpture and to knock out the others that were on the shelf. And then I said to him, you think I'm going to ruin merchandise like this? This costs me money. There's stuff on the floor that's broken. You think I would do that just to scare you? something no but and then that wasn't the first time too i'd have things fall off the wall um and yeah some things did happen but um you know like that woman the granddaughter of the witch said 
you know, you, you don't know how some of this stuff was made, you know, with what intention is behind all of this. And she said, you need to be burning some sage and doing some things to clear out all the bad stuff that might be in here. So, yeah. As I consistently say to members of my Facebook group and in various episodes of this podcast, intent is everything. Intent is absolutely everything. And you do not know with what intent an object was made. The maker might have been having a really tough time or was angry, hurting, grieving. Who knows when they made that object? And they put those, their energies and that intent into it. Or absolutely, it could have been a deliberate intent added. But what sort of items can be haunted or cursed and where can they be found? Well, as the saying goes, how long is a piece of string? Here are some of the many places you can possibly and innocently pick up an item that has an attachment. Antique shops, auctions, estate sales, especially larger items such as furniture, mirrors, but even smaller items like a ring or a chain or even a mixing bowl can have attachments and you might not even be aware until you start experiencing strange things in your home. Flea markets and antique fairs. Inheritance. Roadside finds. Very often, if you find an item that's been chucked out that's in good condition, even if a wee bit old, it may have been chucked, not only because the owner no longer wants it, but because of what comes with it. And finally, thrift or second-hand stores. Because there are so many stories of haunted or cursed objects, I'm really having a struggle to limit the examples. And really, what does that tell you about how easy it is for our energy to attach to inanimate objects? But perhaps I'll begin with that most innocent of children's toys, the doll, or more specifically, haunted dolls. For those interested, there are photos of these items where I could find them on this episode's page of the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. Let's begin with possibly one of the most famous and well-known of haunted dolls, Robert the Doll. Robert is handmade and one of a kind. He was created around the turn of the century. He has blank features that were once obvious but have been lost with time. He stands over three feet tall, is stuffed with wood shavings and is dressed in a white faded sailor suit with a red band around the arm. The doll takes its name from its long-time owner, Robert Eugene Otto who lived in Key West, Florida, in the United States. Otto actually used the name Eugene. He named the doll Robert. As a child, Eugene often blamed the doll for accidents and other so-called misbehaviour. His parents and visitors to the Otto household often heard Eugene talking with the doll, while another unrecognisable voice answered. Eugene's other toys were found mutilated or destroyed, acts he inevitably attributed to Robert. Neighbours, especially children, claimed to see the doll peering out from different windows in the house. There's a story that says an aunt convinced Eugene's parents to get rid of the doll, which was then moved into the aunt's attic. Soon after Robert was moved, the woman was found dead of a stroke. In spite of these things, Eugene retained ownership of the doll well into adulthood. Some say he even dedicated a room in his house to Robert. He decorated it like a child's room and filled it with furniture and toys from when he was a child. Eugene passed away in 1974. By the time of his death, Eugene's home had become a local attraction known as the Artist House because it was so colourfully painted. After Eugene's death, Robert the Doll continued to haunt the property, which by then had been sold to Myrtle Reuter. Footsteps and giggling in the attic room where Robert was kept were frequently heard. 
According to the Key West Art and Historical Society, a plumber once turned around to find that the doll had moved across the room on its own. A reporter named Malcolm Ross visited Robert and later claimed that the doll's expression changed in reaction to things that were said in its presence. Malcolm felt that the doll was listening to their conversation and possessed some sort of intelligence. Myrtle, who brought the home after Eugene's death, kept Robert with her even after she moved homes. She finally donated the doll to the Fort East Martello Museum in 1994. Upon donating Robert, Myrtle confirmed the rumours that he was haunted. She claimed it had scurried around her house. Now, when Robert's stay at the museum began, staff almost immediately noticed a significant change in atmosphere soon after he went on display. Visitors complained that handheld cameras and electronic devices stopped working whenever they stood near him. Their devices began to start working as soon as they moved away from him. Then letters started arriving at the museum that were addressed to Robert. These letters were from previous visitors apologising for acting rudely to the doll and begging for forgiveness, as misfortune had befallen them since their visit to the museum. Letters continue to arrive at the museum where Robert remains on exhibit to this day. In fact, the staff of the Fortiste Martello Museum recommends that patrons behave respectfully while in the doll's presence, that patrons ask permission before anyone tries to take his photo. They even suggest politely introducing yourself just to be on the safe side. A very cute, adorable little furry red Muppet from Sesame Street is our next haunted item. Elmo is a very, very popular character and has remained so for many decades now. And a specific Elmo toy was released by Fisher and Price, who manufactured them in 2005, called Elmo Knows Your Name. This cute toy absolutely topped the list of toy of choice for wee ones at Christmas. Not only because he was such a lovable character on Sesame Street, but because this particular toy was interactive in that it was programmed to recite the owner's name along with some other personalised phrases. A very clever marketing device and made Fisher and Price a lot of money that year and in subsequent years undoubtedly. Now, this particular story begins in 2008, three years after its release. A wee two-year-old lad by the name of James Bowman had been given one of these adorable wee toys by his parents who thought they were giving him this lovely, cute, interactive playmate. And they were, initially at least. However, this particular Elmo Knows Your Name toy didn't only know James's name, but it liked to include the word kill before saying it. Yep, you heard that right kill. Elmo would say kill James repeatedly until his naturally upset mum heard and took the toy away from the wee toddler who was repeating what Elmo had said to him. Apparently this Elmo only began sprouting these death threats about an hour after its batteries had been changed when the original ones that came with the toy had died. James's mum, Melissa, said, It's not something that really you would think that would ever come out of a toy, but once I heard it, I was just kind of distraught. About an hour later, I noticed exactly what it was saying, and my son was repeating exactly what it was saying. Tell James, tell James, tell James. The parents naturally contacted Fisher and Price, and Melissa, in an interview with a local news channel, said, Considering the fact that my son was repeating it has really upset me and there's nothing that they are even going... They didn't even sound concerned about it really when I, t when I spoke to them. The television company then contacted the maker on her behalf who offered a replacement and said they had, quote, experts who would evaluate the toy. On this episode's page of the podcast website at www.walkingtheshadowlands.com there is a video which you can see of the actual interview with Melissa. Was this the result of some programmer adding a little extra to the program that parents had to download to get the toy to work or was it something else entirely? 
You decide for yourself. Mandy or Merienda. When Mandy was donated to the Quesnel Museum in British Columbia, Canada in 1991, she wasn't in particularly good condition. Her clothing was dirty, her body was ripped, and her head had cracks in it. But then she was over 90 years old, so perhaps a little bit of wear and tear was to be expected. Apparently strange things happen when Mandy is about. The person who donated Mandy to the museum told them she would wake up in the night and hear a baby crying from the basement. But when she went to look, she would find a curtain blowing in the breeze from an open window. The donor later told the museum that once she donated Mandy, she no longer heard a baby crying. This is a direct quote from the museum's page on Mandy. Yes, she has her own page which is linked from this episode's page on our website. Quote, But now the museum staff and volunteers were saddled with weird and unexplained events. Lunches would disappear from the refrigerator and be later found tucked away in a drawer. Footsteps were heard when no one is around. Pens, books, pictures and who knows what else would go missing. Some never to be found and others would turn up later. Of course, it was passed off as the staff being more absent-minded than usual. Mandy as yet did not have a home within the museum. As she sat facing the public entranceway, visitors would stare and talk about this doll with a cracked and broken face and sinister smile. With time, Mandy was moved to another part of the museum and carefully placed in a case by herself because rumour had it that she should not be placed with other dolls because she would harm them. Since that time, there have been many, many stories surrounding Mandy. End quote. Some visitors to the museum have had strange experiences with the doll, such as their video camera light going on and off every five seconds. Some people say they've seen Mandy's eyes follow them around the room, while others say they've seen Mandy's eyes blink. But possibly the most famous and well-known doll is Annabelle. Yes, the one that the movie was made about. By now, most of you may have heard or seen the movie inspired by an actual true story. Of course, great liberties were taken with the Hollywood productions surrounding it, much of which is added on for dramatic effect and didn't happen. But the genuine story is scary enough for some. So here's the Reader's Digest version of the real story. The real-life Annabelle story begins in 1970 when a 28-year-old nurse named Donna received the Raggedy Ann doll as a birthday present from her mother. Donna put the doll on her bed and shortly after this, she began noticing that the doll would change positions when she was out of the room, like Donna would find the leg crossed or her lane on her side. This soon escalated into Donna and her roommate Angie supposedly finding notes written on parchment paper around the home containing messages such as help me, help us. Both of these women swear they had no parchment paper in the house. Then the doll began turning up in different rooms of the house and at one time appeared to be leaking blood. At first the girls thought this was all down to an intruder moving the doll around and writing notes and just doing everything they could to scare them. They quickly ruled out that it was an intruder and then, not knowing what else to do, they turned to a medium for help. During a seance with this medium, they learned of Annabelle Higgins, who was supposedly a young girl who may have died on their property before the apartments were built at around seven years of age. Through the medium, Annabelle said she was comforted by the roommates being there and wanted to stay with them and be loved. Donna and Angie gave Annabelle permission to inhabit the doll and then things got worse. They had a male friend, Lou, stay in the night. Apparently, Lou woke up to find the doll staring at him, feeling like he was being strangled and discovering deep scratches on his upper body. It was at this point that Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were known by some as so-called demonologists and Paranormal researchers became involved, and the doll was handed over to them and remained in their possession until their death. They felt that the doll was inhabited by an inhuman spirit and that it should never be touched. They had the doll on display in a locked glass case surrounded by salt to keep it bound in the case 
with a sign on the case not to touch the doll. One museum goer who ignored the warnings and supposedly taunted the doll died in a motorcycle crash shortly after being told to leave the museum. Since the Warrens died, their museum has been looked after by their son-in-law, Tony Spearer, and presumably Annabelle remains there. Charlie Charlie was discovered in 1968 in the attic of an old Victorian home in upstate New York, USA. He was found in the bottom of a tattered trunk full of newspaper. The only other item with him was an old piece of paper containing the Lord's Prayer. The old newspaper used to pack the trunk had dates on it going back to the early 1930s, but the actual age of the doll couldn't be determined. The family already owned a collection of antique dolls and this doll was simply added to it. The doll was given the name Charlie. At first the family, which consisted of husband, wife and five daughters, didn't pay much attention to Charlie. He was just another doll amongst the many. It wasn't until Charlie seemed to move from place to place on the bench that was full of dolls that anyone took notice. The parents, of course, were quick to blame their five kids, but they all said that they knew nothing about how the doll moved. Then the youngest daughter, who was four years old, said that Charlie had spoken to her when she got up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. Naturally, the parents assumed their baby was imagining things. The parents never actually witnessed Charlie doing anything, but children soon became very obsessed with the doll and were terrified of it. All five of them refused to get up during the night to use the bathroom and none of them would go within five feet of the bench the doll rested on. The final straw was when the parents discovered that their youngest daughter was covered with scratches. She was adamant it wasn't from their cat but that Charlie had done it to her. The parents never really found out the truth because they decided, since it was upsetting the kids so much and causing so many issues with them, that they took the doll back to the attic and locked him in the trunk he was found in. Things soon returned to normal and the doll was quickly forgotten. Years later, once the children were grown and the house was sold, the trunk was removed from the attic to be sold at a garage sale. The doll remained one of the last things to go. Finally, a woman brought the doll to add to her antique collection and the homeowner recounted his own story to her regarding Charlie. Since then, the doll has changed hands a few more times and its story has followed it. Charlie has been said to still move from time to time, but he really only seems to affect children. Thank you.
scared yet? Let's move on from dolls to some larger objects. The first of these is one that has fascinated me since I first heard about it some decades ago. And it's called the conjure chest. The conjure chest is an absolutely beautiful piece of craftsmanship that contradicts the strange experiences surrounding it. The history of this chest of drawers is very well known and this piece of furniture currently resides in the Kentucky History Museum in Kentucky, USA, where it was donated by its last owner. Here is the history of this beautiful piece of furniture. Jeremiah Graham was expecting his firstborn son and in preparation he ordered his African-American enslaved person, Remus, to build this chest in around 1830. The chest was beautifully crafted, with, to me, exquisite details from the turned legs to the leaves carved at the top of the chest of drawers, a piece of furniture most lovers of finely crafted antique items would enjoy. However, Jeremiah was not at all happy with what Remus had created, and in a fit of bad temper he beat the poor man to death. Graham's other enslaved people vowed to avenge the death of their friend, and they sprinkled the dried blood of an owl in the chest and had a conjure man, otherwise known as a witch doctor, put a curse on the chest. Ultimately, all those associated with the chest would succumb to the power of the curse, although apparently Jeremiah himself escaped it. His descendants did not. Despite the fact that he apparently despised the chest of drawers, he put it in his unborn child's room. His son was born, but only lived a few days. Every single time from his son's death that someone put personal items, particularly clothing, inside of this chest, then they subsequently died or suffered some misfortune. In total, 16 people were struck by this curse. So, let's talk about the victims and what happened to them, because it's pretty well documented on the museum's page dedicated to this particular object. So, the first victim was Jeremiah's child that the chest was made for, who died a couple of days after the birth. The second victim was Jeremiah's twin brother, Jonathan's son. He had a son whose clothes were placed in the chest, The son was stabbed by his body servant on his 21st birthday. Then the chest was placed in the attic by Jeremiah's sister-in-law, Amanda Winchell, who married into the Graham family. Victims number three and four. Next, there was John Ryan, who was a recent immigrant from Ireland. He eloped with Catherine Winchell. Amanda Winchell arranged for them both to live on land belonging to the Grahams and gave them the chest, which they both used. John was killed in an accident and then Catherine died. Victor number five was one Louise Gregory, a 10-year-old child of Eliza Ryan and David John Gregory, whose clothing was placed in the chest. Victor number six their only son, Ernest Gregory, married Estella Stonecipher. Try saying that fast. Stella put her wedding clothing in the chest and died less than two years later. Victim number seven, Mabel Louise Whitehead, a relative to the Gregory family, came to live with Eliza and John David Gregory in 1884. She married a Wilbur Harlan in 1897. In 1901, Mabel and Wilbur had a baby named Chester, whose clothes went into the chest. Chester died at two weeks of age. Victim number eight, Wilbur Harlan's clothes were placed in the chest, and he died in 1905. David Gregory's nephew, Emmett, was the son of John David's sister, Lucy B. Gregory. 
Lucy had knitted gloves and a scarf in the chest for her son's Christmas present in 1909. Emmett worked for the railway and one evening in late December he got off the train and fell 30 feet through a trestle, presumably to his death as well. Victim number 10, Nellie Gregory, daughter of Eliza and John David, married Fred Fraze in August 1905. Nellie had placed her wedding clothing in the chest. He deserted her. Victor number 11. When Eliza Gregory's husband, John David, died in 1908, Eliza rearranged her house and moved the chest into her room, presumably placing clothing in it. She took her own life and died on the 4th of April, 1915. The chest then moved to Louisville with Eliza and John David Gregory's granddaughter, Virginia Carrie Hudson Cleveland, and her husband, Kirtley Cleveland. She put her first child's baby clothes in the chest. The baby was born prematurely and died the same day, on August the 8th, 1915. Virginia had two other daughters, the youngest being Anne Carrie Cleveland. Anne's clothing was placed in the chest. She was struck with polio. Although she recovered, she had polio-related symptoms all her life. The older daughter was Virginia Hudson Cleveland. Her wedding clothing had been placed in the chest. She married one Wilbur Brister in 1943. In 1944, Wilbur was rushed to the hospital for an emergency appendicectomy. He died from an overdose of ether whilst under surgery. Virginia and Kirtley's neighbour, Herbert H. Sonny Moore Jr., put some of his hunting clothes in the chest. He was killed in a gun accident at the home of neighbours on April the 5th, 1946. Virginia and Kirtley's son, Richard, put his clothes in the chest. Less than a week later, he was stabbed through the hand at school, and that was the final straw for Virginia. She had had enough of the chest and was determined that no one else would die or be injured because of it. So she asked a maid named Sally, who had worked for Virginia for most of her life, if she knew how to break a conjure. Virginia and Sally then set about breaking the curse placed so many decades previously. In order to break the curse, Sally told Virginia she needed a dead owl brought unasked from a friend. Then she had to take the leaves of a willow tree planted by a friend and boil them for a day in sight of the owl. Next, she was to put the liquid in a jug and bury it with the handle facing east under a flowering bush. They would know it worked when either Virginia or Sally would die before all the leaves fell off the bush in the autumn. What a horrible way to end the curse for either of the women, considering they believed in this. That was incredibly brave of both of them. Sally died the following September, which of course is autumn in the States. Before Virginia died, she donated the chest of drawers to the Kentucky History Museum in 1976. She did this because she did not feel that it was right to put it out for some other poor, unfortunate person to collect, knowing that anyone who put items in the chest could die. She wanted it to be preserved, but in a place where innocent people would not be hurt, and she made it perfectly clear that it wasn't under any circumstances to be used. To this day, some of the owl feathers remain in the top drawer, supposedly to keep the curse at bay. So, in total, counting the unfortunate Remus and Sally, a total of 18 people died as a result of this chest. In 1978, a family living in the small town of Horicon, Wisconsin, was gripped by what may be the only case ever of haunted children's bedroom furniture. It sounds funny, but it's actually not. They experienced nine months of torment after purchasing a second-hand bunk bed that unleashed an evil entity into their home. Alan and Debbie Torman brought the bunk from a second-hand shop and moved it into their home on a quiet Larrabee Street. Strange things began to happen almost immediately. The radio would switch stations on its own. The children saw an ugly old woman in their room. She had long black hair and a glow like fire. 
Doors banged open and shut, a chair rocked by itself. Disembodied voices called out from empty rooms. The Tormans decided to bring in their pastor who said he felt the presence of the devil and blessed the house. But the activity continued and their son soon became so scared he no longer wanted to stay in the house. Frustrated one day, Alan walked into the house shouting at the top of his lungs, Pick on me, leave my kids alone. The next day, whatever entity was inhabiting his home accepted the challenge. Alan heard a voice from the garage say, Come here. When he went to investigate, he saw the orange glow of fire inside, with red eyes staring at him through the garage door windows. Later, while in bed sleeping with his frightened children, Alan witnessed a fog rise up out of the floor. It turned into flames with green eyes. A voice emanated out of it, telling him, You're dead. Then it was gone. A few days later, a relative of the family spent the evening at the house helping Debbie with the children while Alan worked late. A sceptic of the paranormal, this relative became a believer that night when a horrific figure materialised in the bedroom as he was putting the children to bed. The Tormans fled their home that night in the dead of Wisconsin winter. The story of the haunted house in Huracan took on a life of its own, grown to include blood oozing from the ceiling, a hole to hell in the basement, and a snowblower that cleared the driveway by itself. The sheriff contacted the family and met with them at the station. Many harrowing and sleepless nights had Alan and Debbie on edge. After hearing their account of the events over the last nine months, he became convinced of their sincerity. At his request, they eventually shared the details of their experiences with a few select members of the press who were not seeking to sensationalise their story and promised to protect their identities. The sheriff hoped the truth would quell the growing hysteria around town, but interest only continued to grow. Following threats of arson, he eventually decided to release the address of the vacant house to ensure a neighbouring home with a sleeping family didn't get set on fire. That's pretty scary. And finally, we have the story of Little Bastard. The famous deceased actor James Dean had a car he called Little Bastard, which was a Porsche 550, and his story begins a week before his death in the car. On September the 23rd, 1955, whilst driving his pride and joy around Los Angeles, James met up with the British actor Alec Guinness outside of a restaurant Guinness was a deeply superstitious man, and after James had shown Alec his new pride and joy, Alec wrote in then unpublished diaries and letters regarding the car. The sports car looks sinister to me. Exhausted, hungry, feeling a little ill-tempered in spite of Dean's kindness, I heard myself saying in a voice I could hardly recognise as my own, Please, never get in it. If you get in that car... You will be found dead in it by this time next week. Apparently, Dean just laughed. A week later, on September the 30th, Dean and Rolf Witherich, a former Luftwaffe pilot and factory-trained Porsche mechanic, were driving the car towards Paso Robles in California when they were in a head-on crash with another car. Witherich was thrown from the car and Dean died on the way to hospital. The car was left at the side of the road. George Barris purchased the wreck Porsche for $2,500 with the likely intent to sell tickets to look at it because it was a big thing. James was a famous actor and transported the car back to his shop. The car slipped off the trailer and broke the leg of a mechanic. Barris then sold the engine and drivetrain to Troy McHenry and William Eshrit. The two used parts to build cars of their own and were racing against each other with those parts in place. Henry lost control and slammed into a tree, this impact killing him instantly. Eshrid was driving his car and the wheel suddenly locked up for no apparent reason, sending the car rolling over in a turn. He was seriously injured in the crash. Two tyres from the little bastard were in Barris's garage, untouched since the accident that claimed Dean's lives. He sold the tyres and both of them exploded simultaneously, causing the driver to run off the road. Barris had kept the car in his possession sans the sold parts, without the sold parts, and it caught the attention of two would-be thieves. 
One of the thieves' arms was torn open, trying to steal the steering wheel, while the other was injured, trying to move the blood-stained tartan seat. In a piece that appeared in a magazine called Jalopnik, the curse apparently continued even further. Quote, Due to all the incidents involving Little Bastard, Barris decided to hide the car, but was convinced by the California Highway Patrol to lend the cursed heap to a highway safety exhibit. The first exhibit was unsuccessful as the garage that housed the car caught fire and burned to the ground. Mysteriously, the car suffered virtually no damage from the fire. The next exhibition at a local high school ended abruptly when the car fell off its display and broke a nearby student's hip. Later, George Barris was hauling the wreckage on a flatbed truck and was killed instantly when the port fell on him after he was thrown from his truck in an accident. Mishap after mishap continued until 1960 when the twisted debris was on loan to a safety exhibit in Miami. Following the exhibit, the wreckage and the truck that was hauling it mysteriously vanished on the way back to Los Angeles. Neither have ever been seen since. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode's journey into this part of the Shadowlands. And before I close for this year, I want to wish all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, in the 54 countries who currently listen to my podcast, season's greetings to you all. If you celebrate this festive season in any way, and for those of you like myself who don't, well, it's just a time to chill and relax for a wee bit. Me, I might end up on the beach enjoying New Zealand's summer sun on Christmas Day, but my thoughts go out to all those of you who are by themselves this season. I know this can be a very difficult time of year for many, many people for any number of reasons. Be kind to yourself and do something that brings you a little joy, even if it's as simple as going for a walk. Look after yourselves. Be kind, be safe, and I'll see you all early next year with our next episode on the 5th of January 2021. Don't miss it. It's a really fascinating interview with a wonderful chap who's a guide doing storytelling and ghost tours around an outdoor living history museum in Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. Join us as he recounts some of the experiences both he and guests on the tours have had. Best not listen to this one with the lights off. Today's music was Are You Scared Yet? by Sasha End, copyright 2019, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution number three. And a special thanks to John Stinson for voicing the Alec Guinness quote for me in his lovely British accent. Thank you so much. It cost me a fair bit to produce this podcast and I'm so very grateful to my patrons for their ongoing support. If you want to become a patron of the show then head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. As a patron you get access to a special members only page on the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com from which you can download full transcripts of each episode. You also have access to some interview bits that may not make the episodes and little extras as I have time to create and add them for you. You also get early access to the shows before everyone else gets to hear them. Also, you have my absolute gratitude and appreciation. So, what are you waiting for? Go to patreon.com ncc15 and sign up now. 
the continued support of my patrons makes it possible for me to financially cover part of the cost of producing the show for you all. So thank you all so much. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to contact me or if any of you have any questions, suggestions or comments that you'd like to make or experiences that you might like to share with myself or my audience or if you feel you might be a good fit as a guest on my podcast, then just email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or check out the Be A Guest page on the podcast website. Check out our Facebook page, Walk in the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name and our Twitter feed at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and don't be shy to leave a written review on your chosen podcasting platform or on the podcast Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands. And of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and iHeartRadio as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, Open Walking the Shadowlands, and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thank you so much for listening today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. 